Okay, so you actually, you want to start off this episode. You got something here. Yeah, so I know we normally start off our episodes with you asking the question, but I have a question that was just sort of burning through me the entire time I was watching this movie, and I need an answer. Is Neil Diamond sexy? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, present day? No. (laughs) I mean, when this movie was recorded. It's tough, right? Like, he... He doesn't have sexy songs. His songs are mostly about like heartache and like, you know, immigration, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, those aren't exactly sexy topics, I feel. So gun to my head, I guess I would have to say no. Okay. Because I feel like a lot of the story relies on us having the feeling or assumption of Neil Diamond as desirable. I mean, his music is desirable to the ears. <laughs> that, I've seen I've seen women who were like all in on Neil Diamond. I've been to a Neil Diamond concert. Uh, there were now these were not like particularly attractive women. But they were, <laughs> <laughs> you said three minutes ago we weren't going to talk about the attractiveness of females. In this but they, the point is though, like they were really into it. They were all in. Like he came on stage and he started singing. Uh, he actually opened with America, and uh, they were just like fucking. Loving it. Today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, welcome to uh, Bad Movies and Beer. We should probably officially get started. I'm Cooper. I'm Nolan. And uh, we are talking about the jazz singer today. It's the our third 1980 movie in a row. A lot of, lot of good coming out of that year. And by good, I mean bad. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that we somehow locked in on three movies from 1980. Um, this one does not feel like a 1980s movie to me. Feels older, right? Way older. Yeah. And I, I guess that's because this is a, a throwback to the original jazz singer. Yeah, it's a it's a remake of the original, which was the first like widely successful talking picture. Um it's not very good either. But <laughs> now does this story have a similar trajectory to the first? Do you know? Have you seen the first? Yeah. One? Uh a long time ago. I saw it back uh like in film school. Um similar themes, the Jewish cantor. Uh, element struggling with you know popular music versus traditional uh, music using your voice for God's work as opposed to your own desires slash commercial success slash ladies uh, <laughs> so yeah man like it's similar uh, but obviously different in a lot of ways Neil Diamond and Al Jolson are very different not yeah. not particularly alike except for one key element that we that we touch on very quickly but we'll get to that in a second first how about telling everyone about the beer we are drinking today so we're going to be drinking uh, a beer called Songbird. Yeah. Paleo. So uh, definitely a connection here between our main character of our story. Jess Robin. Yes. Ter- who- terrible fucking name, by the way. <laughs> Can I just say? What an awful stage name. Uh, <laughs> yes, he's changed it from Rabinovitz, I think, uh, in the story. So Jess Robin definitely is a songbird. And this is from Bicycle Craft Brewery, and they're out of Ottawa, Ontario. I did a little bit of research on them. I've never been to Bicycle um, but again, we've got another sort of group of home brewers coming together to make a craft brewery here in Ontario. Um, what I liked about them was they seem to have a really strong community vibe. So they work together with local people to uh, create different like seasonal beers. And they also do a lot of work in their own community to help people. So I thought that was pretty cool. So And do they just fucking love cycling or what's the... What's the nature of this brewery being named Bicycle? That's a good question. There's not a lot in there. I think in the about section, there's one sentence that mentions sort of the cycling being a natural form of transport. And they definitely connected to living on the land and nature and being closer and a lot of the things they said. I think they called themselves the down to earth 
brewery and i think that is kind of fitting with the cycling motif okay well uh, it also fits with neil diamond's down-to-earth upbringing in this movie <laughs> so why don't we uh crack, crack these open and start exploring that mess beautifully beautiful <laughs> beautifully i don't know i said i was going to stop saying that word too So we open with the credits set to the familiar strains of Neil Diamond's America and then the Statue of Liberty (laughs) followed quickly by people of all different races, creeds and cultures. Also some hard zooms on the American flag. So they are coming out real subtle here to start. (laughs) So I have two questions. Um, I noticed in the credits it said that there was an original song that was created for this and that Neil Diamond did all of the music for it. What what is the original song? I think they all are. Like, I think he, I think the whole soundtrack is, like, this is the first time he released any of those songs. Oh, so. It's a oh, huge okay. success. Yeah, okay. So I was trying to listen through and figure out which one I thought was the song, but that makes sense that all of these might be songs that were released then. And it's, it's interesting to know that the album was more successful than the movie. That's not shocking to me. No. Um, the other question I had was, how many movies have we watched where they start with a Statue of Liberty shot zooming into New York City? I feel like all of the movies that involve New York that we've seen have at least had that shot in it, or all of them. Is that just what you do to tell people you're in New York? You have to do the Statue of Liberty. Fastest way to let everyone yeah. know that you're in New York. Statue of Liberty shot right away. Makes sense. Now, again, with this, the theme of immigration, they're just hammering you over the head with oh, it here. Like, they're making it very It's in real strong. I, we're starting here with, uh, yeah, the song that I recognize from Neil Diamond in the movie. You asked which song was the big song. This one, I mean, we'll see later on. Yeah. Of, okay, so we see a black guy on a city street. He enters a building that we soon realize is a Jewish synagogue. They're in the middle of some kind of ceremony. There's Cantor singing at the front of the room, and among them is young Yusel Rabinovich. But let's be honest here. He's just Neil Diamond. He's just playing himself. There's no there's no character work here from him. <laughs> no, he's just singing. Um, I don't know a lot about Neil Diamond. Um, he speaks uh, um, Hebrew so uh, and sings a lot in it. So I assume that there is a lot of connections to what's happening in this, to his life in some way. For sure. I will also say those are definitely his sideburns. He didn't have to pace on extra sideburns. <laughs> glorious, glorious sideburns. It's hard to tell where his hair ends and his sideburns start. They're so billowy. They really are, yeah. This guy who came in the synagogue hilariously struggles to put on a yarmulke because they make him wear a yarmulke. Yeah, we have some yarmulke comedy. I know that <laughs> you've uh, had some dramatic moments with the yarmulkes in your life, but... Uh... We're not talking about that. <laughs> After struggling to put this on, he makes eye contact with Neil Diamond and kind of motions they need to go somewhere, at which point Neil Diamond speeds up the song he's singing, much to the dismay of his father, who, uh, in what has to be the absolute low point of a legendary career, is played by Sir Laurence Olivier. That was Sir Laurence Olivier? Yeah. What? The legendary star of stage and screen. I would not have in a hundred years um, made that guess or gamble. You could have told that to me and asked me to bet my entire house against it, and I would have. Because it's not a particularly good performance. <laughs> no, no, we're going <laughs> to see that very soon. Yeah. It's just, yeah, just shocking to me. Did he have, like, gambling debts, like a financial advisor steal money from him? This was filmed in the late 70s. Did he have, like, a cocaine problem that wasn't publicized? How did they get him into this movie? We also find out that uh, Neil Diamond's character is married to Rivka, who is a member of the same synagogue, and that that night they are supposed to be, like, studying or maybe teaching something. They're to going do with to their the library, At think, the library, yeah. yeah. But he asks his wife to cover for him so he can head out with his friend Bubba, who is the guy who came into the synagogue. Yeah, Bubba's sort of pulling him along, and she does. She covers for him, uh, and he heads off with Bubba to a club. 
But when he gets there, there's a bit of an issue. Well, yeah. So Bubba's part of a vocal group, and he's writing songs for them. They have a gig that night, but they're short a member. They want him to fill in. But as you mentioned, there's a small problem. The show is at a black club, and Neil Diamond is not black. Uh, he's like, I can't go out there, do it just three of you. But the group is desperate. There's an agent coming down to see them, and he expects to see four brothers. That's their words. Obviously, Neil Diamond has some reservations about this, but they're out of time. As the club promoter comes backstage and says, Hey, blood, plasma, whatever you want me to call you, brother. If you don't get your three, four black asses out here, I'm going to have to put on another act. But please tell me that ain't no white man. So naturally, there's only one solution. Throw on some blackface and an Afro wig and get out there. Footnote, we are six minutes into this movie. Yes. If I asked you at what point you expected there to be blackface, would you ever have imagined that it happened this quickly? No. No, I would not have imagined this at all. Um, I know the original, like I've never seen the original jazz singer, but I know that Al Jorson or a lot of it or all of it I think it's just one song. Oh, is it just one song? It's famous. He sings Mammy, which is, you know, not... uh, not the most culturally appropriate or sensitive song yeah. uh, so, for any time. So I know that that movie sort of, right, being the first widely distributed talking movie featured that, which obviously is racist, right, it is problematic. And it was interesting that they chose, I mean, 1980 is not where we are now. There would never be a film production that put a character in blackface current day. I mean, not so never is probably the, the wrong word, but always sunny in Philadelphia did it just a couple years ago, but it was, it was meant to be like parody, which this, yes. and this, this is, see, here's my problem with this. They're clearly trying to do a nod yes. to the original. Yes. They create a reason for it. He's not really on board with it. He's pressured into doing it by the black guys. I don't know how to take that. Cause I don't know. I mean, I, I get you want success. There's an agent coming. I feel like that's still a line that a lot of black people wouldn't cross, no matter how much you want success. No, I agree. I think that it's interesting that the writers chose to make that a choice. Like, I, I, I like that it just wasn't him going out there and not caring about oh, it. Oh, they're working was, real hard to make yeah. it, like, not his decision. Um, but it was interesting that they chose to do it. So he goes out there on stage, and they're performing together. And what, <laughs> what happens during the performance of Yo Baby Baby? Well, yeah, despite him not looking or sounding even a little bit black, they get most of the way through the song before one particularly observant audience member, played by Ernie Hudson, star of Ghostbusters and, of course, the Human Tornado. Yeah, I noticed that, Uh, actually. I was excited by that. Yeah, he notices that Neil Diamond's hands are unmistakably white. See, he did the black face, but he forgot to do the black hands. So close. And he was playing guitar, which kind of hit it, but then once he gets into this sort of really big clap, it became quite obvious. Yeah. Now, uh, Ernie Hudson is understandably incredulous, and he outs Neil Diamond and tries to get him off the stage. Neil Diamond punches him in the face, which starts a brawl in this club that somehow doesn't end with the entire audience beating the shit out of Neil Diamond. So this was interesting. I, I... I know that they're trying to set up some conflict in Neil's life. They need a reason to show us that there is, there's an issue between his cantor singing and his father's expectations of him and the things that he wants. But I was trying to decide what was worse in terms of racism here. Was it the fact that, of course, it broke out into a full club brawl in the black club or that Neil Diamond was in that black place? Because I think both of them are pretty sort of stereotypical and insulting okay first of all i feel like like people wanting to fight him for this is totally justified like that would happen he would get his ass kicked the the thing that i don't agree with is why like 
they're fighting amongst themselves. The well, audience, that's it. The audience that's starts what I mean. each other. They, they why, made... why wouldn't they all just be beating the shit out of him? Well, that's crazy to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I agree that the anger towards Neil would be appropriate. I think the way they depicted how the crowd acted was sort of following along stereotypes. Okay, I, like any excuse, they start punching each other. It's yes, a whole giant thing. exactly. Yeah. That's what I felt like was shown in there rather than like a concerted effort. They should have just picked that guy up and thrown him out of the club, right? There didn't need to be a fight oh that God. ended the night, right? He deserved to get the shit stomped out of him for that. But, you know, the cops eventually come, break this all up. And the next time we see the four brothers, they're getting bailed out of jail by Neil Diamond's father. He is not impressed, especially after uh, Neil Diamond tries a bullshit excuse that a funny thing happened on the way from Shul, which made me chuckle. <laughs> I like that his friends try to back him up to on this here. They, Bubba and the others start to try to back him up. Uh, his one friend starts dropping some swear words and uh, they have to correct him in there. Oh yeah, Sir Lawrence Olivier looks at these three black guys and his son and then says, It's not tough enough being a Jew. And then uh, walks off to fire his agent. <laughs> Sorry, that took me a second. I was thinking about the um, the comment he made, right? It's an interesting comment that they throw out here, right? Because they're saying that it's more difficult to be black than it is to be Jewish in New York, which was an interesting sort of discussion that they don't pursue after this, right? Like, it just kind of walks away. No, but it does kind of give you an idea of, like, the social hierarchy at the time, which continues pretty much to this day. Yes. So, like, yeah, he's kind of saying to his son, like, you know, we have it hard enough. Why are you trying to make it even harder? This is also the scene when we first hear Neil Diamond's stage name, Jess Robin, which again, while we can all agree it's probably a better stage name than Yussel Rabinovitz, it's still pretty terrible. He sounds like a low-level teen girl pop star. Yeah, that is exactly what I pictured, especially from the 80s, like the name Robin and both Jess, yeah, I, he should be singing very poppy songs at a mall. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, he's a songbird. Uh, the next morning, he talks to his wife, and we find out that his father had no idea he was moonlighting in the pop music world, so uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier is extra unhappy, which is quickly confirmed by a scene back at their apartment where he chastises him for using his voice outside of the synagogue. He's a cantor, and that should be enough. But it's not enough for Neil Diamond, who wants a place for him and his wife and eventual children. They have a big argument about God and tradition. And someone please correct me if I'm wrong, but this German-Jewish accent that Sir Lawrence Olivier is using, it's not good, right? This is like a bad... <laughs> it's, not, it's not. It's not good. I was shocked to find out just moments ago that it was Sir Lawrence Olivier. I yeah. was really struggling with the performance of the father in this. Uh, I, I didn't notice the accent as badly, but it, it was not a great performance. Both the expression of sort of anger and sadness that come off like really cheesy. And he is really chiding his son here, right? I guess there's five generations of Rabinovitz as being the cantors for the synagogue. And I don't know a ton about Judaism or the religious ceremony. But what it, it becomes clear here is that it, there's a large community of people who rely on each other and they don't really go out of that community. And his father wants him to stay within that community. Yeah, and he browbeats him into backing down here. Sure enough, uh, Neil Diamond says he'll just be a cantor, he'll do things the traditional way. But some cracks start showing up almost immediately when he hears from Bubba that the group has a gig in LA singing backup for a big time musical act. It's Keith Lennox, Mr. Platinum himself. <laughs> So this is this is funny. We're going to meet Keith uh, pretty shortly, and I have a question about that, too. Is this about the time, too, where 
he's sort of struggling with these decisions and his wife is with him in bed and he abruptly turns down sex with her. Yeah, he tells her how he feels about all this, but she doesn't understand. And then she tries to, you know, cheer him up by you know, sexual uh, advances. But no, he turns her down and steps outside to write the first bittersweet bars of Love on the Rocks. <laughs> uh, she she looks pretty sad lying there in bed, but just wait till she hears the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's It just seemed he was struggling so badly here with what was going on with him. But when your wife tries to cheer you up, how often are you going to say no to that opportunity? I don't know, man. He's clearly in a like an emotional place he feels a disconnect from her right like this is this is actually one of the only scenes where i'm like that's a that's a that's the way that might have gone in real life like i can see how a person would like he's doing an okay job an emphasis on okay of like communicating that he feels this distance from her and by extension the whole community yeah it was interesting because i i hadn't at first connected his relationship to her as closely with his relationship to the community but it becomes clear as we go through the movie so this surprised me when this happened i was just like really like you just do it and then you go write your sad song like what what's wrong with you neil yeah man well he's got inspiration right away we get a taste of those song lyrics the next day after he finishes teaching a religious song to one of the synagogue youth He's supposed to be warming up the pipes for a party for his father. 25 years he's been the cantor. But when he gets a phone call from Bubba saying that Keith Lennox wants to record Love on the Rocks and they need him in L.A. ASAP, he's got a tough decision to make. This is really funny because he's trying to give a life lesson to this boy, right? And the boy doesn't want to go through with singing the song at his own bar mitzvah, right? And it's it's interesting to me that the life lesson he gives him is that sometimes you just have to do it for your parents. Yeah, but I interpreted this as... He feels this way about, you know, feeling distant from the religion and from the religious community. And now we've got this kid from a younger generation who's expressing many of the same feelings. Like maybe the interest in religion is kind of starting to taper off. Younger generation less interested in that. That's but, how I interpret it. But why didn't he tell him to do what he wanted? Like, because it, right, right now he's acting out the stuff for his parents. He's, he's you know, it's a big day for his father. So <laughs> he's trying to convince everyone, but really he's trying to convince himself. That's all it is. It's a layered performance, nuance. I'm gaining new respect for this as we talk about it. So I start asking, why did they make this film about this time? I have no idea. Like, Because Neil Diamond wanted to be in movies and this was the most palatable script. And this is how you do it. This is, is this just a way to sell an album, right? Like, is this a way to promote Neil Diamond in another avenue? Or do you think he really thought he could act? Oh, he wanted to do it. Uh, from everything I've read, like he very much was interested in the movie career. And it wasn't until after doing this one where he was like, maybe this isn't for me. He just—I guess that's good on him for deciding afterwards that he couldn't hack it, right? Because he's really struggling. This—he feels like a poor man's Neil Breen to me right now. Oh come on! That's, <laughs> there's no, there's no comparison. If you don't know who Neil Breen is, Google it. Neil Diamond did not fund this movie himself with his fucking gambling winnings. Or what did Neil Breen? It doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> we'll get to that when we do a Neil Breen movie. I guess so. Uh, he's conflicted. Obviously, he runs this trip to L.A. by his wife. He actually wants her to come with him, and she is not on board. Gives him a big-time guilt trip on behalf of her and his father. But he tells her, I love my father. I'll never do anything to hurt him. But I'm going to L.A. With you or without you, I am going to L.A. The camera angle isn't doing him any favors here, but he looks and sounds, like, menacing, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah, emotion was a difficult thing for him to portray in this film. Uh, I think he definitely struggled. Being a professional singer doesn't mean that you can act, and it really comes across in all of these supposedly emotional scenes. 
And on that same note, despite saying five minutes ago that he wouldn't do anything to hurt his father, he tells him about the LA trip right in the middle of his father's party and right in the middle of his father, like reminiscing about his dead wife. So this scene to me was baffling. They start start telling the story of, I guess it was Neil Diamond or his character out on the streets and the wife went out to get him and was killed by terrorists. Uh, it, I interpreted it as something like during wartime almost, or I don't know. But the it, way it, that the a, story was being told, the amount of horror in that was was dramatic, but it was laughable in the way that it was shared, right? Like this is probably one of the worst things you can happen, but the way that they came across and told that story and the way how quickly he moved past it. Yeah, it's like, okay, okay it's time to stop acting now. That scene's done. Let's go on to the next thing. That's exactly what yeah. it felt like, right? It, it was it was weird. I, I really disliked this scene. Either way, uh, just a terrible time to tell your dad you're leaving for the fucking coast. Luckily, though, he cheers him up with a rousing round of Hava Nagila, which apparently is the fastest way to win over a room full of Jewish people. All of a sudden, that party's popping. <laughs> it did uh, go off. Um, again, I don't know enough um, to know whether that's a common thing or not. Definitely. Now, amazingly, his father wishes him the best in L.A., despite being sure that he won't come back. And that's where we're off to as he arrives in the airport to find his escort, Molly Bell, waiting. Just to be clear, she's his escort, not an escort, I don't think. Uh, (laughs) I didn't make that connection, but I did write, uh uh-oh, when he meets her at the airport. You know that uh, another love interest is being sort of inserted into the story here. Yeah, and uh, after some last name and geography-based chit-chat... She escorts him to the studio where we find out that Keith Lennox has made some uh, alterations to his song, let's say. Yeah, this is funny. The Keith Lennox character is sort of a somewhat aggressive British song person who likes to sort of speed up and have music. Is this inspired by David Bowie? See, I was going to go Billy Idol. Ah, okay. I got Billy Idol vibes, although I feel like it's too early to be Billy Idol. I don't think Billy Idol really hit until kind of later on in the 80s. He does definitely look more like Billy Idol than David Bowie. But for me, just the way that they portrayed the character, I wonder if this was sort of Neil taking a shot at David Bowie. The thing is, this guy's got a much more like kind of punky edge that David Bowie doesn't have. Like Apparently, Bowie could be very cruel, but he did it in like a very kind of like... More like icy, almost like classy way. I don't know. Yeah. So I, either way, they're, it, they're clearly alluding to a certain type of music that Neil Diamond's not on board with. He doesn't like this version of the song, unsurprisingly. So Lennox's manager sends him in there to get his ass handed to him, uh, which he does, but only after performing the song in the classic Neil Diamond way that made it one of his greatest hits. It's moving and emotional, and Keith Lennox listens to it the whole way through before he shit cans him and the Four Brothers. <laughs> I do love that how he goes in there to show him the way it's supposed to be sung ballad style. Yeah. And then uh, that there's an immediate firing. Um, I definitely appreciate that, which was funny because I think when you write a song for someone, you don't really have that say, right? Oh, no. It's like writing a screenplay. You hand it over and it's out of your control. Yes. And so it, it was pretty funny to see that. But what did the musical technicians and Molly feel about the way that this all went down? Well, they liked it. She got fired too, by the way, because she said she liked his version better. So she's out also. They're all fired. Uh, Now, according to Bubba, there's only one thing to do at that point. Have a party. And this party scene is one of the most bizarre things I've ever witnessed. There's a puppet and a guy playing a banjo, and they're all dancing around to, like, a sea shanty? It's a really weird song. They're, like, bouncing off the couches and doing strange dances. Is this how people partied in 1980? Like, is this what went down? I find it very hard to believe 
Like his whole band, his whole the group, there's four of them there. They were super into this. One of them was playing like a fucking washboard or something. I'm like, this is not, this does not track. Come on. It seemed kind of weird to me. It seemed kind of problematic too. I was like, I had a struggle with this one. Yeah, it seems that they're having fun though. Uh, but Neil Diamond's character, Jess, is dealing with some emotions. So he goes for a walk on the beach. Molly comes out to cheer him up and she's got a gift. The recording of him singing Love on the Rocks in the studio. She's plucky and she thinks he's got what it takes to make it to the top. She convinces him to stay and she's going to be his new manager. And I could be wrong, but I feel like there's some sparks flying between them. In fact, they basically fall in love a day later when he plays Hello Again, another great Neil Diamond tune. This is funny. They've known each other for less than a day. It always happens. She's always, she's already convinced he's going to be a huge star. Well, you heard that performance. It was incredible. And she has uh, already fallen in love with him, right? And it's just, I mean, they have to do this in a movie, but uh, as we know, this is just bullshit. Yeah, but time is money. So, you know, he said they have to do it. And so she's become his manager and now we're going to get a really weird scene. Well, we, yeah, we hear the song hello again after she fails in her first attempt to get him a gig basically she holds up a club owner for a slot opening for a comedian when he thinks that the tape in her pocket is a gun uh it doesn't work out but quickly his old pal bubba comes through with an opportunity at the club where he's working as a waiter now neil diamond makes the most of this and the club owner from the car even shows up and after seeing him crush it gives him that opening slot after all now speaking of opening slots molly is so excited that she kisses him right in the mouth Um, yeah, this is funny. So they were running out of time to get this gig and Molly really wants him to stay, but Neil's sort of dedicated to only being there for two weeks. He still is going to go back to that life. She offers him her body if he will stay. She literally says the words, I will give you my body. But now hold on to, to be clear. She does it in a comedic way. She's not like literally like, she's not like undressing being like, please do me, Neil. Yes. She says it in jest, but I think she's serious. In the way that she expresses it. She would have, if Neil was into it, got down. Second time in the movie, a woman offers herself up to Neil, and Neil gives zero response. Right? He's married, just though. Just deadpans a, it. This is him he being has, a good guy. You just already told us that he has no love for the other woman, his wife, that he's turned down. She asks him if he would prefer pizza, and this I thought was funny. Well, he goes for it. He's a New York boy. So they, they do. They go get some pizza. And Probably going to be terrible, though. He's used New York pizza. He's going to have California pizza. No. <laughs> so they get to that gig, uh, and they're playing, and they're playing Ooh Baby Baby again. You Baby Baby. It's called You Baby. You know. Baby Baby, I think. And uh, what happens with the promoter who shows up to sort of listen to him play at the club? Yeah, he goes for it. I already said that. No. He's going to give him the spot. He's going to give him the spot. It's Shit. fine. But all this success he's about to have is, like you said, it's going to push him past the two-week time he was supposed to say. So we get a very uncomfortable phone call home at this point, followed by just a terribly acted scene where Jess's father encourages his wife to go to California to be with him. It's real bad. Yeah, he says that a wife's place is with a husband. That's some traditional thinking there. And uh, it's also her job to go get him and bring him back. Yeah, she's basically like, she knows how this is going to play out. She's like, he's gone. Fuck it, forget it, it's over. But yeah, she agrees to go get him. Now, it's time for the big performance. Jess Robin walks onto the stage to chance of We Want Zany. That's the comedian he's supposed to be opening for. So it's going well. Uh, But he somehow settles them down with the song Summer Love, which I'm a huge Neil Diamond fan, and even I don't like that song. (laughs) It's terrible. I was not impressed in his stage performances here. I am not a Neil Diamond fan. Oh, come on. Even after this? <laughs> Especially after this. Um, I found all of these live performances painful. 
All of them. Hang on now. There's only one performance in this entire movie that I appreciated and enjoyed, and we'll get to that much later. Um, We're watching here, and this is reminding me of the Village People movie we watched. You Can't Stop the Music from our first season. I almost feel like the song performances in that were better, though. Way better. I'm, I'm getting really similar vibes to that. I was excited going to this movie. I love musicals. You know this. I love music. And it is not being pulled off for me here. Neil Diamond singing at this concert and all this stuff. It is actually during this scene that it made me ask whether Neil Diamond was sexy. Because you see him trying to perform to this crowd. And he, he's trying to pull off his best sort of like... Well, no, but no, but it's not, it's not his best. And that's my problem with this. This song is a terrible song for him to lead off with. No set should open with this song. Hey, producers, maybe keep one in the chamber for the big scene, huh? Maybe have like a better song that you can hold back to you and unleash. Now, luckily, the second number kicks it up a notch. It's My Louise. And that at least gets the people clapping. While this is going on, his wife arrives. She meets Molly and pretty much cuts right to the chase, asking if she's been f***ing her husband. <laughs> Awkward. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because um, Molly's honest. She lets her know that she did offer up her body, but instead they got pizza. And the wife laughs at this, and they kind of seem like, okay, we're good. Yeah, the answer is no for now, so at least she doesn't have to worry about that. But what she does have to worry about is how much the people love Neil Diamond, and more importantly, how much he loves performing for the people. This is a problem, and after a very dramatic conversation backstage where she basically tells him that this wasn't what she signed up for and she wants their old life. Maybe you can break away from it, but I don't want to. I should have taken you out of that apartment years ago. You sound like my father. I've always been like him. You're the one that's changed. You're damn right I've changed. I finally found out where I belong. It's not back there. It's here. She literally runs away from his dressing room. Uh, he slams his fist against the doorframe in anger. This whole sequence is hilarious. It's just terrible. Her running is bad. The angry fist slam is bad. Like I was just laughing out loud, which was not the intention, I'm sure. Yeah, it's really bad. I'm actually kind of like not enjoying the music or this sort of conflict with the wife and Neil. I'm not pulled in at all. I'm not believing it. I think I'm looking at the back of the DVD at this point. And oh, how much longer? Is yeah, that <laughs> well, a little bit. And And I notice as well on there that there is one quote. And that quote is from Christopher Sharp of Women's Wear Daily. Oh, that's that was, a low pull. That was the <laughs> best pull this could get. <laughs> and oh, it no. says, you'll want to see it a second time. That was the, the quote on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing my ass off because I'm like, I'm not so sure I will. <laughs> oh, my God. That's incredible. The yeah. best quote you can get is from Women's Wear Daily. Jesus yes, Christ. That, that's the support this movie found. Oh, fuck. Well... <laughs> It looks like their marriage is over. But luckily, uh, he's still got Molly, except uh, she's also disappeared and won't return his calls. He finds her about to ship off to Acapulco with some guy named Tommy who is in desperate need of a back wax. I was going to say, Tommy has got a yeah. natural sweater. Um, she's distant, and he almost walks away, but he comes back to tell her that he has feelings for her, and he doesn't want her to go to Acapulco with some dude. Turns out they were only going to Catalina for the day, so he playfully sprays her with a hose, and then we get a montage. <laughs> Just for you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm struggling so much with this unrequited love into love immediately that the montage doesn't do it for me. The part that is funny as I think we kind of end the montage on her serving him a giant ham. <laughs> so that, that is definitely the highlight. Yeah, we see their relationship progressing. They're walking on the beach, working in the recording studio, riding a tandem bike. I'm not shitting you. They're riding a tight tandem bike. <laughs> 
Uh, and yes, it ends with her trying to serve him a ham. He can't eat it's ham. It's a ham it's for 20 a, people. It's a huge ham. It's not even like, it doesn't make sense to cook this giant ham for two. And the fact that he's Jewish is hilarious. Well, but also, it takes a while to cook a ham. At no point in this process was he like, what are we having? Is that ham? Like, he would have smelt the ham four hours before There's it was no ready. way this yeah. happens in real life, but whatever. It's, and then her reaction is fucking funny. <laughs> this all ends with him guiding her through what appears to be some sort of religious pre-sex ritual. There are two absolutely incredible five-minute stretches in this movie, and this is one of them. This whole sequence, to me, was fucking just tremendous. Uh, I loved it. So I'm struggling so hard with their relationship at this point, the montage and what's happening to them. He looks significantly older than her, and he's not particularly handsome. Oh, he's old as fuck. That was actually, you mentioned criticism a second ago and quotes in the back of the DVD. Roger Ebert fucking savaged this movie. And again, I don't always agree with Ebert. He and I have a bit of a history. Mm -hmm. But like, he fucking said, he pointed out rightly that he's like, he was way too old for any of this to be happening to him. He's like fucking 37. Like, there's no chance. He's super old. Yeah, Yeah, I wrote down here that he's, he's old and not handsome. I was like, this would not happen to him. There's no way that we would have this person who leaves that life and find stardom right now looking like that i mean he is a star in real life so i don't really know what you're saying there just gonna defend my man here but um either way (laughs) they're they're very much in love things are going well and that means we're overdue for some adversity so here comes papa he decides to surprise jess in los angeles and although he comes in pleasant he starts laying the guilt on almost immediately he asked him to come home literally two minutes after he walks through the door and we get some fireworks well, not fireworks. That implies good acting. We get some like uh, party horns and those things where you blow on them and they uncoil. That's the best <laughs> I can do. <laughs> the kind of anticlimactic uncoil. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of what happens. I agree. <laughs> anyway, things really take a turn when Jess tells his father he's getting a divorce like 10 seconds before Molly walks through the door, which again, so fucking contrived. Papa Ravinovich fires up, tears in his eyes and says, No. I have- no, son. And then he tears the lapel off his jacket, which Neil Diamond explains means he's now dead to the father. And again, Sir Lawrence Olivier, not great. Not a great performance. This was the best worst part of the movie. I laughed my ass off at Olivier's performance here. It was so unbelievable. <laughs> I I was like, I was really struggling. There was not a lot of parts that I found funny or enjoyable up until this point. This was funny. Um, and... The worst part about that is this is supposed to be the most dramatic part of this movie, right? This is the part where he is struggling with family and success, and he has just lost family. It's gone. Oh, yeah, and now we get into the dark times. That night, Jess hammers the keys of his piano dramatically, and the next day in the studio, he starts shitting all over everyone there. He's basically acting the same way Keith Lennox was, and when Molly tries to call him on it, he storms out. Now, this is exceptionally bad timing because right before that, we find out that she's pregnant. So again, they are just slathering on the drama. Just trying to make layers of things that are going wrong in his life, and... It's just not working. He leaves the studio and tears off in a car, nearly hits a cop. Yeah, I remember that too. He almost kills three people. Yeah. He's walking around. He just drives over them. And I was like, at this point, I was like, this is going to get good. He's going to do something angry and stupid, and this movie is going to start getting fun. Well, now, hang on, though, because I'm sure for you it does get good because this is where we get the introspective montage. Nope. Nope. Come on. You're wrong. 
This is where it gets boring because he becomes a hitchhiker and yeah. then he turns into a fucking cowboy. Yeah, he drives out in the desert till his car runs out of gas. Then he, I guess, like walks to a Greyhound station because we see him getting off a bus in Laredo, Texas, where he grows a beard, buys a guitar from a pawn shop and hitches rides across the country, stopping only for the occasional beer, cigarette, and hopefully meal. Uh, this is all set to Songs of Life, which... It's a good soundtrack, but they can't all be winners, you know? It's not It's not great. This, all of this made me feel like they were trying to create a classic movie feel. So all of the sort of shots that they were taking, the music they used, made it feel like a much older movie. And so I assume that is sort of an homage to the first one, I, I guess. I don't know. That's kind of what it felt to me. They were trying to make it feel like a classic film. There's a shot of him in the diner while it's raining, and it might be <laughs> the worst moment of this entire movie. If we post, uh, well, when we post on social media information about this, that has to be the screen capture, is that sad face of Neil Diamond with the rain washing down. <laughs> He's going through a lot, man. He's basically thrown his burgeoning recording career away to live the life of a musical hobo. The transformation to me is so weird. He like lets the beard grow, he gets the hat, and then he becomes basically a cowboy Texan. And I want to know if this movie is implying that all cowboys were sort of love-lost Jewish cantors. Well, uh, we know from the song Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison that every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. So clearly they've all been through some sort of emotional trauma. So maybe this is, so they don't have to have been cantors before, but they all had to go through a trauma to become that cowboy life. Clearly, that's, that's like a requirement. Okay. The other that's why question, every country song is about fucking, you know, bad stuff. So the other question I had, and this relates to our conversation about blackface earlier, is I don't know if you noticed, what was the big thing hanging in the background of his performance at the country bar? I didn't know. Was it Star of David? A giant Confederate flag. Oh. Yes. Didn't notice that. Yeah. So they're really hitting a lot of racist notes in here. They're uh, just... Well, no. Okay. I mean... I got to stop you. The, listen, in 1980, you would have found that all over the place in the South. Yeah. I'm um, not going to disagree with you. I think it's probably was put into the set making to help them tell where they were. Yeah. They're establishing location. Right? They're establishing yeah. location. I, I just thought that popped out to me too as I was watching as a sort of difference between now and then okay that that's fair because i sometimes accuse you of viewing movies you're, you're unable to separate our current time from the time in which it was made in my yes. opinion yeah well that's fair and that's why i kind of had to jump to defend that because like that i think to your point is just establishing location and is it racist present day perception yes 100 percent. but that was like that was just a common thing it was all over the place because people identified it more with like uh, southern pride yeah so i know i derailed this there a little that's bit okay. He becomes yeah. a cowboy. He yeah. literally turns into a cowboy. He buys a cowboy hat yep. and he starts performing at a cowboy. He's board. singing country music. Now, this is the biggest leap of all movie leaps. Bubba finds him playing at some podunk country bar because, in his words, one musician can always find another musician. You know, despite there being no GPS, internet, cell phones, or anything else that would have possibly let him know where he was. His friend comes. And Bubba has some pretty important news for him. Well, yeah, it turns out that it wasn't Molly or his father who sent Bubba to get him. It was the infant son he didn't know he had because I guess he's been gone for like a year. Like this, this rattled me. I'm like, he's been gone for that fucking that long. It was like, it seemed like a couple months, maybe. Yeah, no, apparently he's been gone for a really long time. Um, it's hard to tell that based on the filmmaking. The only thing that maybe tells me that is that the place that he performs in has dramatically changed from the start to the end. We've seen it grow a lot and the people there. But guess what? He's found out he's had a son. He's a dad. He's going home. Yeah, he's going to return to his old new life and rejoins his wife and child to the sounds of hello again because he's saying hello to them. 
again. Jesus Christ. This scene on the beach where he meets his child and she sort of like holds it up and he kisses its head and they have this family embrace is awful. I struggled super bad. You know what also is horrible about it? Neither of them are supporting the child's head. (laughs) This kid's head is flopping around and they like clearly neither of them know how to hold a child because I was like, Uh, there's got to be a mother in the background watching this scene who is just freaking out because (laughs) both of them are holding it in a way that I'm like, they're dropping this kid. Again, I think parenting techniques have evolved a lot over the last 40 years. I don't know. Yeah. How did Uh, we make it out of the 80s is the question. I think you're right. Uh, Yeah. And in this scene, we fade out. And I kind of thought that was the end because like, hello again is kind of a song to go out on. But the next day. I kind of wish it was. Yeah. we. (laughs) But the next day, we see the same promoter slash club owner from earlier getting in his car where, surprise, Molly is waiting for him trying to get Jess a slot on Zany's autumn special in New York. After some terrible back and forth, the promoter agrees. And from there, we cut to rehearsals where Jess is visited by his father's old friend, Leo, on Yom Kippur, no less. Yeah. So he was sort of practicing for his big performance. He's going to get a a chance again, a second chance. This movie is all about second chances for Neil, right? He's going to get it second chance at love, second chance at fame, second chance at family, maybe. And this is what Leo's here to offer, right? He's saying it's Yom Kippur. Your father can't sing anymore. We need a cantor, a Rabinovich cantor to come and sing. And does Neil want to go back and do it? Well, he says no. Yeah, his father, as you mentioned, has high blood pressure. The synagogue doctor won't let him go on stage. because Yes, that's exactly what so yeah. yeah. Uh, no, he says no. But Molly pushes him to do it with a speech that makes a lot of sense. Uh, still, we dissolved the synagogue not knowing for sure if Neil Diamond will sing that night. No, I'm just kidding. We know he will, obviously. That's where this is going. It's, it's visible a mile away. Yes. Uh, he emerges from a door, makes his way out, so he's standing behind his father, and he belts out a rendition of Cole Nidre so hot that it melts that old man's icy heart. Well, kind of. Yeah. I am actually super drawn in in this song section. I am a sucker for choral singing, and it is a really good performance of the, what is the song? Cole Nidre. I really enjoy it. I'm here, and I'm loving this part. I was, like, happy that this happened. And you're like, okay, maybe his dad's going to be like, we're going to get this back, but... Well, it takes a little more convincing. The old man finally cracks when Neil Diamond tells him, I understand. You have no son, so you have no grandson. Suck it, Pop. You just got transitive property. <laughs> and he resists for a while, right? We get a really poorly acted scene of him trying to resist loving this grandchild and his son. As soon as you uh, see the picture of him, though, it's over. Well, he waits just a moment, right? He gives that moment, and then he, like, open mouth kisses the picture of his grandson. <laughs> He's very into it, yeah. And they, it, it, this all works. Him and Neil Diamond embrace as we start to once again hear the sound of America. And sure enough, they're going to bookend this thing. But this last performance is just the full Neil Diamond treatment. He's got the trademark sequin shirt. It's basically 80s concert footage. And cut into that footage, we see his wife and father sitting side by side cheering him on. Uh, it's pretty great. But then, just when things couldn't get any better, he strikes the pose from the movie poster slash DVD cover. And that's right, fucking freeze frame. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we hit the credits and we're out, man. That's it. So, yeah, the fucking shirt and scarf he's wearing are so sparkly and bright. The thing that baffles me about Neil Diamond that I've learned during this movie, because I know very little about him, America and Sweet Caroline are probably the only two songs that I know um, the fact that Sweet Caroline didn't appear in this film is really disappointing. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Um, different era. But 
I don't understand why he's so flashy on stage, yet his music is so boring. Oh, how dare you? Spoken like someone who's never seen him in concert, okay? He's got some up-tempo numbers. He's got some great performances. He's kind of a crooner at heart. But listen, dude, there's he's got plenty of good stuff. And I guarantee you, you know more songs than just those two. You just don't realize they're Neil Diamond songs. I recognize Love on the Rocks, and, and I probably recognized Hello as well. I am not a Neil Diamond fan is what it turns out. I well, did not enjoy his performances in this film. You're going to have a chance to rate them right now because we've reached the part of the podcast where we rate the movie. Now, of course, uh, hopefully by now you know the deal. We rate it two times on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 to 10 for how bad it is. 1 to 10 for how enjoyable. And the goal is to find a movie that is 10 out of 10 on both scales or as we call it, the Crit 20. And I'm going to go first for how bad this movie is. Listen, I love Neil Diamond, but it's pretty fucking bad. <laughs> He's not, he's not a good actor. He's it not. is no surprise that after this, the only other movie appearances he made were playing like uh, versions of himself, comedic or otherwise. This movie did not need to be remade. They did it in a way that I get what they're going for, but they missed the mark on a lot of things. Acting not great. I don't know what the fuck Sir Lawrence Olivier is doing anywhere near this thing, but he stinks also. Um, other than the songs, like there wasn't a lot in it for me. I mean, I laughed at a lot of parts, but that wasn't that was what was supposed to happen. So I actually have this as a nine bad. I couldn't go full 10 because the music redeems it for me a little bit. But yeah, it's it's real bad. What do you think? We locked in together. It's nine again. Okay. Uh, we're, we're pretty close on bad most of the time, I think. Enjoyability is usually the one where we kind of diverge a little bit more. I'm, I'm assuming we're going to diverge there on this one. Probably. Too. I think so. <laughs> um, I really struggled with the acting, with the storyline. The, as you say, now considering the times and then, I, I know it's hard, but the sort of racist elements that were in it, believability was an issue, and I just don't even understand why they remade it. So it's a nine bad. I'm I, I'm going to lock it in there. That's fair. I'm almost afraid to ask, but how enjoyable do you have this movie on a scale of one to ten? Okay. I found it slow. I didn't enjoy the music. It felt like a promo for an album and not a movie. Just like The Last Dragon. So it reminded me of The Last Dragon. It reminded me of the Can't Stop the Music Village People movie, right? Like yep. those two I was driving back to. The parts that saved it for me was when he got angry and turned into a cowboy. <laughs> okay. that was I laughed a lot at that. That was kind of fun. And the finale did. I wish there was more of the performance energy that showed up in the finale. I understand you're trying to tell a story about someone who's breaking into stardom. But if you're going to make a musical performance movie, I want more of that. I found this less fun, less bright, and more slow and boring than the Village People movie. Like, Can't Stop the Music was a much superior movie to this. Oh, I agree. In terms of uh, almost everything you're describing, it's, yes, it's brighter, it's more colorful, just it's like faster paced. Neil more Diamond's fun. music, yeah. this is more boring and slow. How and, dare you? Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> uh, so I wrote it as a four. Four enjoyability. Oh, my me. God. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, we are we are worlds apart on this one. Uh, <laughs> and I expected that because I am a huge Neil Diamond fan. So for me, the performances are great. As someone who enjoys bad movies, there was a lot here for me to enjoy by like laughing at. And so I did. I enjoyed it very much. Anything from this time period, I'm so fascinated to see what the world was like. And we get it here through some of the things you're describing. And yes, some of those things are racist and very problematic. But it's still for me interesting to kind of like view this almost like it's like a time capsule. I had this as an aid enjoyable, but of course, because of the fucking freeze frame, I'm giving it the standard plus one. I have this as a nine. Holy fuck. You more than doubled my enjoyability <laughs> yeah, really rating enjoyed on this it. movie. 
But again, oh I'm God. a huge Neil Diamond fan, so it makes sense that I would. One thing we didn't mention that I want to mention now, did you notice how whenever there's a very dramatic scene, he was never look someone in the eyes. He'd always be like looking at like their chin. He was like intentionally <laughs> looking lower. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Does Neil yeah. have a problem with eye contact? I don't know, man. But if you watch this again, uh, well, that's <laughs> never going to happen. Unlike the sort of uh, wonderful praise they got from uh, Women's Wear Daily, I will not be watching it again. I am not Christopher Sharp. Yeah, man. Uh, we are way up in that one. No surprise. What about this beer? What do you think of this beer? I enjoyed it. Uh, so we were drinking Songbird Pale Ale. Great connection. I think you did a good job with this one, Coop. Uh, Bicycle Craft Brewery. It's really light, easy drinking. I definitely get both the citrus and kind of the... The malt is very kind of... Sometimes I call it as biscuit or cookie. Like it, I definitely get that kind of aftertaste of biting into a nice shortbread cookie kind of thing as you, you drink it. How about yourself? So the key word then what you just said there is pale ale. This is not an IPA because I can't fucking stand IPAs, but pale <laughs> ales I enjoy very much. And this one I fucking loved. I thought it was tremendous. Like you said, super drinkable. Fucking just crush two of these tall cans, no problem. Big fan. I would drink this again in a heartbeat. One of maybe my favorite beers that we've had so far this season. Nice. That's a big praise right I there. I think it's literally my favorite. Holy shit. Yeah. Beautiful. So that's going to pretty much do it, man. We uh, successfully navigated the murky cultural waters of the jazz singer. And next week, we are going to spice things up a little bit. We're going to throw some more action into the mix since you complained this was too slow. We're going to another James Bond movie next week. We're going to be talking Die Another Day. <laughs> is this Pierce Brosnan? It is the last Pierce Brosnan Bond, the 20th Bond film. And uh, it's not great. <laughs> we're going to see it. I, I kind of have fond memories of those. These came out right as we were, like, early to mid-teens. So I think that... It'll be a good laugh for sure. I we we enjoyed Moonraker when we watched it last season, so I'm ex I'm excited to watch this one. Yeah, it should be enjoyable. Uh, if for no other reason than to kind of walk down memory lane. I mean, at the very least, it'll be a faster paced, more action packed film than the one we watched this week. So we'll get something out of it for sure. Until then, if you have not already, please follow us on social media at the BMB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, if you have any suggestions, you can slide into the DMs or you can send us an email at the BMB Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we just did Flash Gordon last week. That was a request. We're going to have another one coming up soon. And also, we forgot to mention the last time, the YouTube channel. We are posting our previous episodes on YouTube. They're just audio. There's no video. But in case you want to listen to them on there. But that's going to do it for this week. I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And we'll see you next time on Bad Movies and Beer. Keep it chatty. Some of these are just Sometimes you have to risk it all.